Golden Girl, Part 4 To recap, Parts 1, 2 and 3 Mags was the golden girl in the early part of my life. Just two weeks older than me, she was the girl, then woman, I said I wanted to be like. But she threw her life away, and with it all her friends and family. Now please listen to part four, the conclusion of The Golden Girl. Although Mags had finally gone out of my life, we received occasional letters from Taff. He was constantly struggling as a single parent. But help came to him in an unusual way. It came in the motherly form of Joan, the next-door neighbour and wife of the man with whom Mags had had an affair, and apparently with whom she was now living. It was a natural union, the forlorn husband of one and wife of the other. Not only that, but Joan's daughter Julie was a friend of Sarah, and in many ways had suffered much the same domestic path of family deceit and denial. It was no surprise after a few years to hear first of a double divorce and then a marriage between Taff and Joan. After a brief honeymoon, the newlyweds took up their new life with joy. It was a union made in heaven. For a brief while, it was harmonious. We resumed our family visits with Taff and Joan and enjoyed their company immensely. Taff actually began to show his old, offbeat sense of humour that had endeared him to me back in England so many years ago. Part of this harmony was that Tim had moved out to live, first with his mother, then with a friend. Julie shared a room with Sarah, and the relationship was more like twins than sisters, but it didn't last very long. By now, both girls were in their teens, a very explosive age especially when your stepsister is not only the same age, but vying for the same boyfriend. Surely that says it all. In the meantime, Tim, a year or so older, had issues of his own. What better parent can you have than a mother who chooses you as a drinking buddy? Sadly, the answer is any parent is better, and Tim found that out too late. When, age 21, he was well on the way to being an alcoholic. On welfare straight from school, he got himself into a mess financially and moved back home so that Taff could pay his debts. But right at the beginning, he showed an open resentment to Joan, accusing her of taking over his mother's home. This also became a catchword for Sarah whenever she had problems with Julie. It was obvious to me this was a no-win situation. What you need to do is move out of the house and the neighbourhood. You and Joan start afresh, I warned Taff when aware of the difficulty. But he took no heed on a variety of reasons. Mostly that the kids were happy where they were, because their friends were there. The fact that most of their friends were only one step away from the law didn't seem to occur to him. He was determined they would not suffer any more than need be. After all, in his mind, he had caused them to be victims of a broken home. Broken home or not, both Tim and Sarah lived there, with many of their friends crashing on the sofa at night, raiding the pantry whenever the inclination, and doing nothing whatsoever to assist in basic chores. To give due, 
Julie did attempt a few times, but got ridiculed for her efforts. With the kids both now living at home, Mags too began to call in more frequently. And, of course, she had a key. Apparently, she was no longer working, and would wait until she knew Taff and Joan were out, then let herself in, have a shower, and even cook a meal. You can see the dispute in her mind. It was her house, bought with an initial deposit with her father's money. When I brought this up to Taff, he was surprised, horrified, and upset. He pointed out that it had always been his money that paid the mortgage and rates, and that they had come to a settlement deal, very much in Mag's favour, when they had got divorced. When hearing this once again, I urged Taff to move, but it turned out that it was too late. Life was about to deal him and Joan another blow. By comparison, my life in Toowoomba was steady and pleasant, a little inclined to routine perhaps, but nothing wrong with that. One day, with no warning, I came home from work to find Mags waiting in the garden, slumped out on the porch. A truck driver friend of hers had given her a ride interstate. He was doing a round trip from Sydney to Brisbane, and she had got him to do a detour to our house. He was going to pick her up on the way back in a couple of days. She looked awful. Her acne was once again prominent, her hair was a tangle and in need of a good wash, and she had put on a lot of weight. Of more importance, though, she was sober. Although she had visited the house a couple of times, she acted as if she had never been inside before. She commented favourably on JC's woodwork, my pottery, the design of the house, and once JC and the boys came home, made a fuss of them, chatting amiably and taking an interest in all they had to say. It was both wonderful and weird. My old Mags was back again in person, even though her body indicated otherwise. We talked well into the night, and not once was there any suggestion that her marriage had broken up and her life was in such disarray. As usual, I was a coward and allowed her to govern the conversation. I had also managed to avoid offering her a drink. Instead, as I showed her to the spare bedroom, I offered her a cup of hot chocolate. She laughed. <laughs> I thought you were going to offer me a nightcap. The elephant had just walked into the room. I, I'm sorry, I stammered. We don't have any liquor in the house. Bullshit, she said. No worries. I'm on the 12 Steps program. This was the opening I had been waiting for and found myself asking the same question I had asked nearly 30 years before. What happened, Max? It was almost dawn when we finally said goodnight, and I went to bed with a warm glow of friendship I had missed for so long. I thought back on our conversation. When we got out of the hostel and I got the job with the agency, I felt such a sense of relief, she had said. I felt I needed to make up with all the lost time. Even the years in Abarafan, I had felt half dead for years. But, but you were so happy, so confident, so... 
Serene, I gushed on. She shook her head. Oh, if only you knew how much all that play acting took out of me. The next morning I got up late, tired and happy. I told the boys to be quiet and let Mag sleep in, and when they were gone took her a cup of tea. She was fast asleep, so I wrote a brief note telling her to make herself comfortable and that I would be home mid-afternoon. At that time I was working at the YWCA and had a busy day of meetings with school principals for new projects. But all the time I was wondering if I should give Taff a quick call and tell him of Mag's new personality turn. Reluctantly I decided against it. After all, change or not, he and Mags were now divorced and Taff really had no further responsibility with his ex-wife. Driving home, I began to plan the evening meal that I felt should be representative of a special occasion. I called into the local store to pick up a few groceries to give it some finishing touches. When I got home, Mags had gone. It would be another five years before I saw her again, and this time I threw her out of my house. It was 1990 and JC had been offered a six-month placement at Lucas Heights Laboratories in Sydney. I had also obtained a temporary placement in the YWCA head office, another small adventure. I looked forward to the opportunity of living in a big city for a while. The stars must have all been in alignment, for I also managed to get a six-month lease on a lovely, fully furnished unit in one of the inner suburbs. The boys were going to have their Christmas holiday break with us, then go back home once school and university began in late January. Sadly, things had not gone all that well for Taffy. Sarah and Tim had continued to be disruptive and embarked on a path similar to their mother's. They would create discord, sometimes trashing the place with parties when Taff and Joan were out then leave in a big dramatic verbal fight, only to return a while later full of apologies, then begin the cycle all over again. I had spoken to Taff and Joan about Mag's visit to me, and they had at first been delighted, only to find that her attitude to them had resumed arrogant disinterest in their welfare, with obvious overtones of drunken behaviour. Her 24 hours with me had simply been some kind of relapse. However, all this time, Joan's health had been deteriorating. Finally, she went to a doctor and did all the tests. The diagnosis? Cancer at an advanced level. Both Taffy and I were of the same mind that regardless of the obvious physical and medical side of her health, the mental issues associated with the constant intervention from Mag's and her children had exacerbated her decline. Joan died within six weeks. Taff became a virtual hermit in his own home. He didn't answer telephone calls or even come to the door when we called. We were in the final week of our Sydney residency when we received a call from him in an agitated state. In his slow, almost taciturn way, he apologised profusely. Apparently, Mags had made one of her regular visits, and he had let her know not only that we were in town, but where we were living. 
I was in mixed feelings about this. Memories of our last meeting had suggested we still had a friendship. Yet once again she had disappeared with no further communication. It was well gone midnight the following night when there was a loud rap on our duplex door. This was accompanied by shouting. JC hurried down and with a certain amount of trepidation opened the door. A woman was standing there with a tall, heavily bearded man. Both were in leather bikey gear. They both pushed past JC and as the woman took off her coat, it took me a moment to recognise Max, who, like her partner, was now covered in tattoos. With despair, I saw they had a six-pack of beer with them and from the look and sound had imbibed a good many already. The following few hours were a nightmare. Apart from the pockmarked face and the blue eyes now glazed, I hardly recognised the friend I had loved for so many decades. She was coarse, vulgar and rude. Even her partner sat with a modicum more poise than she did. He simply consumed one beer after another in a great long guzzle, with an intermittent burp accompanied by a FUCK ME as an acknowledgement. When the six-pack was gone, he got up and went to our fridge, found an open bottle of white wine, and proceeded to drink it out of the bottle. Mags talked a lot, going over past histories, which she had seemed to rewrite herself in as a victim. I had gleaned the real person she was beneath the alcoholic haze. There was a lot of ranting and raving and castigation of Taffy. But then she finally crossed the line. She began to rubbish Joan. This was too much. I jumped up, bundled up their coats and with little attempt at an excuse simply said, It's late. I think you'd better go. There were a few surprised expletives, but little resistance, and within a few minutes they were outside the door, which we locked. We waited with bated breath until we heard the motorcycle roar away. What had happened? What was this about? What had motivated the visit? Or the one to my home? I didn't know. I didn't care. I was finished. She was gone. Finally, this time, and I was glad. Taff continued to withdraw into himself. My letters went unanswered, as did emails, which had just begun to be a new form of communication. Phone calls would be answered, monosyllabic, and then one day I got a letter. Mags was in a hospice. She was terminally ill with innumerable complaints. Basically, her body had just broken down. Too much alcohol, too many drugs. He included the address. It was up to me if I wanted to visit. But if I did, it had better be soon. I didn't sleep that night. By the morning, I had decided I wouldn't go. By the evening, I decided I would. Another sleepless night. The next morning, I booked an early flight. I was in Sydney by 10am and at the hospice by midday. I didn't recognise the little old lady in the dark austere room. 
The hair was mostly grey with red raw scalp, evident in small patches. The pox-scarred face was wrinkled, the skin grey and sagging in folds. A gnarled, veined hand held the blanket up to her chin. She appeared to be sleeping with rasping breaths. I sat beside her for a few minutes, thinking back to that first meeting. Yes, decades had gone by, but we were the same age, and I didn't look like that, did I? As if I had spoken out loud, she opened her eyes. A slight smile came over her face. Still want to be like me when you grow up, she said in a gravelly voice. I found tears come to my eyes and took her hand. The skin was like paper. For the third time in forty years, I asked the question, Mags, what happened? She looked beyond me for a moment, as if, like me, she was going back in time. Then, looking at me directly, she said in a low whisper, I told you when you asked the first time. I stuffed up. But that was when you had said no to David at the altar, I said. She nodded. Yes, I said no when I should have said yes. But why, I asked. I don't know. I've never known. It was just an impulse. But Mags, that was a lifetime ago. What about all those years with Taffy? She gave a little grin, and some of the old twinkle came into those blue eyes. Ah, oh, that was when I said yes, and I should have said no. I was bewildered. This was no answer, no excuse, no reason for all the upset, the heartache, the drinking. Again, it was as if she read my mind. To begin with, I didn't think I deserved to be happy. When I began drinking, I didn't want anybody to be happy. She squeezed my hand. And you know, the funniest thing, I've always envied you. But Mags, it was you who had everything. The looks, the family support, the brains, confidence, personality. Yes, she said, but you had perseverance. You stuck by me all these years. A true friend. A friend who actually envied me. Me. I bet you don't want to be like me now. She chuckled. <laughs> I remember that. All my life. Then, withdrawing her hand, she put her finger to her mouth to blow me a kiss. And then she was gone. Thank you for listening to The Golden Girl, Part 4. Written and narrated by Brianda Cross. And thank you to all those who have listened in to parts 1, 2 and 3 and written to me. Your comments are most welcome. And yes, you are right. This is indeed part of a biography, which has the rather somber working title of My Life and Death Diary. But, like life itself, it is often very funny. More about it on the webpage Fast Fiction Podcasts. Dot com. Thank you.